I'd like to take a moment to pray for Dayton, Ohio, for El Paso, and for Gilroy. Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? Dear God, sometimes it seems that the words of Romans 1 are enacted before our eyes when you give men up to do their evil deeds because they've become so evil. Father, I, I, I pray for the families who lost loved ones in El Paso and Gilroy and Dayton, Ohio. The, I, I can't imagine what comfort will salve the grief that they feel. But Holy Spirit, I pray that they would know your comfort, your presence. I pray that your church in Gilroy and El Paso and Dayton would find ways to express that comfort, express that love. I pray for those who witnessed these atrocities memories burned into their brains forever. I pray, Father, that uh, there would be healing. And when the questions come, I, I pray that they'd ask the big enough ones to realize that you're the only one to turn to in times like this. I pray for the civil leaders, civic leaders, uh, law enforcement officers, emergency workers, those who worked in the Gilroy Festival and Walmart and the mall where these shootings took place. Lord, I pray that, uh, for their comfort. I pray that they would know that they can throw themselves on you in spite of all that they're feeling. Father, I, I pray for our country. I pray for the, the place where these shooters are birthed. I pray for the families of those shooters. And we come to you because you're the one that we can talk to about this stuff. We can talk about it to others, but we can only talk to you about how do we deal with it? How do we handle it? How do we interpret it? So we, we ask these things, Heavenly Father, in your sovereignty, your love, your grace, your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember, do you know when you first walked, took your first steps? In a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn to someone next to you and share whether or not you remember uh, when you first walked or not. But uh, my two-year-old granddaughter will never be able to forget when she first learned to walk because her folks, my son and daughter-in-law, videoed it. Parker, sit down. Come Sophia, here. Go get mommy. Sophia. Sophia. Go get mommy. <gasps> Yay! Ah, there it is. Oh, good oh, come girl. Here. All right, let's try one more time. Ready? Yeah. Oh, she's oh, going too wow. fast. Oh, <laughs> too fast. <laughs> okay. Come here. <laughs> oh. We're starting to be toes. It, uh, it doesn't look as easy as we think, right? So, so would you take a moment and neighbor nudge and, and turn to the person next to you and see if you, do you know, did your folks ever tell you, when you what, how old you were when you started to walk? Go ahead, take, take a moment to do that.
So, so those of you who know or were told, uh, I want to know what's the, the earliest, the earliest someone walked. Anybody walk in, at six months, seven months, eight months, nine months? No, you, you, ten months. Oh, nine, nine months over here. Good. Okay, the latest, uh, the latest walker. Uh, I have no prizes, just uh, <laughs> recognition. Um, uh, let's see, let's start with uh, 14 months. Anybody want 14 months? 15 months? <laughs> 16 months? 17 months? I walked when I was 17 months old. This is about a picture taken by the time I started walking. I had a sister who was born 11 months younger than me, and uh, I wanted to be carried too. And so I, it, I just didn't walk till I was uh, 17 months old. Walking is a, is a basic skill, a very important basic skill that we, earn, we learn early in life. That's why it's, it's so heart-rending when someone can't walk or when the ability to walk is taken away later in life. But walking is not only a basic skill, it is an important activity. I once was talking to a friend who had a heart surgery and he was telling me about what the doctor prescribed for him after surgery. And I was really interested and surprised to learn that with all of the medications, all of the procedures, all of the medical equipment that we had, the doctor said the most important thing he can do for his health, the most major therapy he could do post-surgery was walking, everyday, regular walking. Which is why it's fascinating to me that when we read the Apostle Paul and he's looking for an image to talk about the Christian life, he uses the image of walking. We read these words in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says... So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is apparently a very important activity in the Christian life because it helps us deal with our flesh. The flesh is the part of us that wants to please ourselves. It's the part of us that doesn't want to please God and oftentimes finds expression in our lives in us becoming the kind of people we don't want to become. You may have had one or two of those days where you've lost your temper or you've expressed pride or exhibited anger or, uh, or engaged in destructive sexual behavior. And you say to yourself at the end of the day, oh, I wish I couldn't do that. I wish I, wish, I wish I weren't that kind of person. I wish it could be different. That's the, that's the flesh. That's the struggle that Paul is talking about. And he describes that struggle this way in the next verses in Galatians chapter 5. He says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Don't follow the inclinations of the flesh. And Paul says, in this struggle, in this battle, he finds a permanent principle. It's what he calls a law, and this is how he describes it in Romans chapter 8. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And it is to that struggle that Paul uses the image walking 
by the Spirit. One Christian author described his struggle in these words. Listen as he writes. For many years, I grappled with the problem of how I could live a holy life. I attended spiritual life conferences of different kinds and received conflicting counsels and various degrees of temporary help. I read every book I could lay my hands on about victorious living. Often I would feel that I had turned a major corner in my life and would seem finally to be in possession of the secret. But a few days after turning the latest corner, I would find that the fizz had gone out of the pop. We look for, we want, it's, it's natural for us to want some quick fix, some secret to victory. It, it kind of reminds me, I'm a history major, so you know I'll go there. Um, it reminds me of how the people of Washington, D.C. approached the first Battle of Bull Run, Run at the beginning of the Civil War, July 21st, 1820, 1861. They heard the, 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 the battle begin out in Bull Run, Manassas, Virginia, and, and they loaded into their buggies and they, they, they headed out uh, to the battlefield to watch the battle. As one uh, news reporter said, it was like going to a a horse race or a July 4th picnic. That's what they were heading out to watch. And the people, the rest of the people in Washington, D.C. went to Sunday morning church and Sunday uh, afternoon dinner. And afterwards, they kind of gathered in the streets waiting to see what the results of this battle would be. And they waited through the night into the early dawn hours when soldiers, unarmed, straggled into the city streets, blackened by mud and blood and smoke, cartridge powder, written on their faces was the truth that there would be no glamorous victory. It is not easy. And the reality that a war is more than one battle faced the people of Washington, D.C., square in the face. And in our own lives, becoming the kind of people God designed us to be, becoming the kind of people that we want to be, is not a one-time battle. It's a lifetime. It's a process. Our, our author that I read a few moments ago about his own struggle continues and went on to say, transformation, he writes, is not an overnight matter. It takes a lifetime. Therefore, he says, beware of any book or teaching that purports to teach one simple secret of victory. There is nothing secret about the process. No faith, no yielding, no letting go and letting God can begin the sanctifying process within you. And no secret can complete the process. If you are a Christian, he writes, the process has already begun. And that process, Paul calls walking by the Spirit. Now, if he's drawing from the physical image of walking, we know that when we walk, it takes two steps. Follow with me here. One, two. Got it? One, two. And then those are repeated ad infinitum. That's called walking. One step, two step, one step, two step. And that same pattern we can talk about when we talk about walking by the Spirit. And I want to suggest to you what those two steps might be as we begin exploring this important ability, this important skill in the Christian life. So step number one is to keep deciding which direction you are headed. 
about uh, a little over six years ago, I started walking um, 30 minutes a morning, uh, five or six mornings a week. And I live in a neighborhood where um, there are three different directions I can go. And initially, I timed out these, the, the routes so that um, I would know when I've walked 30 minutes and I don't have to watch uh, my clock all the time. And there are three routes. One is fairly flat, one is moderately hilly, and one is mostly hilly. And when I head out of the front door of my house to do my walking in the morning, by the time I hit the sidewalk, I have to decide which route I'm going to take. Am I going to take the flat one? How am I feeling today? Am I up for it? Am I, you know, I'm going to take the, the hilly one. And these are the latest pair of shoes that I use to walk in. Um, and I have to decide, am I going to walk in the flat? Am I going to walk in the partially hilly? Am I going to walk in the mostly hilly direction? That's what we need to do when we begin walking by the Spirit, to decide which direction is my life headed. Uh, there are a lot of Christians who've decided where their eternity is headed, but they haven't been intentional about which direction their life is headed, what kind of person they really want to become and want to be. And left to our own devices, left to our own inclinations, it is our flesh that will be expressed. And oftentimes our flesh takes us in the wrong direction. Paul talks about that expression in Galatians 5, beginning at verse 19. He writes in the Living Bible, but when you follow your own wrong inclinations, your lives will produce these evil results. Impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful, lustful pleasure, idolatry, spiritism, that is encouraging the activity of demons, hatred and fighting, jealousy and anger, constant effort to get the best for yourself, complaints and criticisms, the feeling that everyone else is wrong except those in your own little group, and there will be doctrine, wrong doctrine, envy, murder, drunkenness, wild parties, and all that sort of thing. These and more are the kinds of attitudes and behaviors that will lead us to becoming the kind of people hopefully we say we don't want to be. And Paul, in fact, says we don't need to be those kind of people. We don't need to become those kind of people. Romans 8, Paul writes, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. We're under no obligation. Just as, just as Jesus said no to the power of sin in his life, we can say and should say no when deciding which direction our life is headed, which direct, what kind of person we want to become. I remember thinking years ago that uh, my generation, baby boomer generation, when we were young in our 20s and 30s, we asked the wrong question. We asked what we want to be like at 40 or 45. And we should have asked, what do I want to be like at 70 and 75? What kind of person do I want to be? Because here's what happened. At 40 or 45, when they weren't anywhere near the kind of living the kind of life they wanted to live, the kind of person they wanted to be, they ditched. They ditched their faith, they ditched their ministry, they ditched their marriage, their families. They, they bailed. 
we need to ask that longer question. What kind of person do I want to be? I say no to the wrong. I say yes to the kind of person that I want to be. Larry Crabb, some of you may know the name. He's a, a Christian counselor a years gone by. He kind of shared a lighthearted story about saying no uh, to the wrong. Listen as I, I read his, his own story. Some months ago, I was flying from Detroit to Fort Lauderdale. When the meal was served, I immediately noticed the chocolate eclair in the rear left corner of my tray. I hurried through the lukewarm, more or less palatable meal in anticipation of the epicurean joys before me. Those of you who are in love with the eclairs know what he's talking about. When I was ready for the eclair, I noticed with dismay that I had emptied my coffee cup. I am one of those whose pleasure in eating sweet desserts is immeasurably enhanced by sipping hot, aromatic coffee. Coffee drinkers here with it? Picture my dilemma, he writes. The stewardess was busy, and it appeared that I would have perhaps 10 minutes wait before I could have more coffee. A space of approximately 12 inches separated my mouth from the eclair, and I knew that I should wait. My thinking was quite clear. Greater pleasure would be mine if I waited the 10 minutes. The next step in my self-counseling was to hold myself responsible not to eat. And so I began reviewing the situation mentally. Larry, I told myself, you really ought to wait. It's the best way to meet your needs. You should be able to wait a mere 10 minutes. You know it's best. Your beliefs are in order, so wait. Since I was thoroughly convinced by my own arguments, I was chagrined to notice my hand grasping the fork and moving steadily toward the rear left corner of the tray. My consternation was mingled with guilty pleasure shortly thereafter as I carefully savored the chocolate flavor which filled my mouth. Noticing that the single bite had reduced the size of the eclair by one-third, I frantically returned to my internal debate. Larry, you really blew it. Sure, it was good, but there is no coffee to round out the pleasurable moment. Picture the joys of coffee and wait, wait, wait. Armed with a new resolve and feeling quite confident, I again noticed with alarm the movement of my fork-carrying hand. After my second third of the Eau Claire, I, it occurred to me that my rather trivial defeat paralleled the defeat of so many people who know how to do right, who want to do right, and proceed to do wrong. I could not chalk up my defeat to lack of willpower. If that were the reason, I was destined to continue defeat since I had no idea how to quantitatively increase my willpower. In reflecting on my dilemma, Larry writes, I was struck by what was the real lack. I had understood my needs, I was thinking right, and I earnestly wanted to do right, but I had never died to the eclair by saying no, by making a firm, conclusive, assertive, emphatic, negative decision. Underneath, he says, I was still entertaining the possibility of giving in. And then he writes, after checking to see that no one was either watching or within earshot. I glared steadfastly at the eclair and quietly but mostly firmly said, no. 
Have you ever talked to an Eau Claire? <laughs> and he's a Christian counselor. <laughs> the fruit of the victory that followed a few minutes later was a single mouthful of eclair with a sip of hot coffee both before and after. We need to keep deciding to say no to the kind of person we don't want to become and saying yes to the kind of person that God designed us to be. Keep deciding in walking by the Spirit, keep deciding which direction you're headed. Because becoming the kind of person that God designed us to be begins first with a generalized idea. And in Scripture, we get some of those general ideas. To be Christ-like, to be holy, to be uh, gentle and kind, and, and, and those characteristics. We get some general ideas. But from that general idea come specific responses. For instance, uh, last fall, uh, my doctor told me that some of my numbers in my blood test needed to be reduced. That was the generalized idea. I needed to get these numbers down. And so I decided that uh, one of the numbers that I needed to get down was my carbs. Uh, and uh, so uh, I'm not one for diets where everybody tells me every little piece of thing I need to eat every day. I'm not into that. Uh, some, some are, and I'm not into grapefruit diets, and I'm not into that. This isn't a diet. This was a, a regimen change. So, so I, I went online. I asked Google uh, how many carbs a, a man should have per day. And if I'm going to reduce my carb count, I needed to reduce my carbs. Do you, do you follow that? Is, that? is that understandable? So Google said between 225 grams and 325 grams a day. So I love to keep score and I love to win. So I set my bar at 200, 200 grams of carbs a day. And so I began counting. And every time I'd eat, I'd eat something, I'd ask Google, Google, how many carbs are in whatever? And if we went out to eat, I'd go on that restaurant's website and look for the carbs, you know, just... And if I ended the day under 200, I won. I won. And, and I, I hated going over 200. So I got me a little book where I keep score of, <laughs> of my carbs. Now, now, my kids say, Dad, there are apps for that. But I don't do apps very well. And all the apps wanted you to add all this other crummy stuff in there, too. So I just, I just count carbs. The generalized, I, by the way, uh, between September and February, I lost 17 pounds. I never expected to lose weight. I just wanted to get my numbers down. The point is that I had this generalized idea of what I wanted to be, but it had to play itself out in specific responses. So on July 4th, you ever tried to have 200 carbs, grams of carbs on July 4th? <laughs> Came to the end of the day, and I had to say no to apple pie. Yes. <laughs> I, I said yes to too many other carbs. But that's what we're talking about here. You begin with a generalized idea of the kind of person you want to be, and then every day you are faced with choices. Is this, going to, is this in the direction of saying yes to the kind of person I want to be? Am I saying no to the kind of person I don't want to be? Every day is filled with multiple choices. The Christian life is filled with choices about the kind of person you're going to be, the kind of person you're going to become. Are you going to become the kind of person that God designed us to be? A.W. Tozer said it this way, 
our choices not only reveal what kind of persons we are, but they also determine what kind of person we will become. And then he says this, which is really scary. I wish he hadn't said it. Every person is as holy as they really want to be. Years ago, some of you heard me tell this story about a husband who went to a men's conference, and at the men's conference there was a a speaker who talked about the godliest man he knew in his life, which was some uh, saintly figure in his, in his younger years who mentored him or coached him or whatever. It got the husband to thinking, and when he went home, after kind of retelling the story of the conference and what it was like, he asked his wife, honey, who, who's the godliest man you know? And she thought for a moment, and then she named a pastor in her past from one of her churches that she'd attended. The husband thanked her, and then he went to a quiet place and prayed, Dear God, make me the godliest man my wife knows. There is a generalized idea that plays itself out in specific choices every day. So how about you? Would you pray, Dear God, make me the godliest employer my employees have known? Dear God, make me the godliest employee. Make me the godliest student. Make me the godliest instructor. Make me the godliest neighbor. What, what direction are our lives headed? That's the first step in walking by the Spirit. Now, walking by the Spirit doesn't mean there won't be battles, but I will tell you this. Every time there's a struggle, you have an opportunity to make a choice about the kind of person you want to become. That's the first step. Step number two. Keep asking the Holy Spirit to take the lead. You see, in contrast to the effects of following the inclinations of the flesh are the attitudes and behaviors that come with walking by the Spirit. They're known as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You know the list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. This is in contrast to the works of the flesh. Forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Trying to produce this list on our own is where defeat and struggle come in. It's where disappointment and discouragement come in. Watchman Nee said it this way, Many Christians endeavor to drive themselves by willpower and then think the Christian life a most exhausting and bitter one. So Paul counsels us in Galatians 5, since we live by the Spirit, that is, the Spirit has given us new life in Christ, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Other translations talk about being led by the Spirit. The idea is the same. Let the Spirit take the lead. When the Spirit takes the lead, the Holy Spirit is then free to do what only He can do. Years ago, my wife and I were living in Annandale, Virginia. We bought a home, and uh, there were some changes that we wanted to make and needed to make in our bathroom. Now, you have to understand that I am not a big Mr. Fix-It guy. It took me three days to change a garbage disposal once had to turn the water off in the house. It was my, my kids heard, uh, when I cuss, I say blast, okay? 
my kids heard three blasts that day, those days because I was really frustrated. So I am not a fix-it guy. You don't want me fixing your garbage disposal, okay? But I asked Clint Smith, who knew how to do this kind of work, to come in and renovate our bathroom, tear out the old tile, put in the new tile, tear out the floor, put in a new floor, tear out the sink, put it, did everything, everything that we wanted to have done. Only he could have done it. I couldn't have done it. I knew what I wanted. I knew the kind of bathroom I wanted. But I couldn't make that happen. Clint did. That's what we're talking about when we say, let the Spirit take the lead. Because the Spirit is good at helping you become the kind of person you want to become. And let me say this. There are, as Paul has said, there are a lot of other spirits out there. If you're a Christian, you're a supernaturalist, and, and you believe in the unseen world. And there are influences in the unseen world that will cooperate with you if you want to say yes to sin, if you want to exhibit the inclinations of the flesh. There's only one Holy Spirit, and we ask Him to do what only He can do. Holy Spirit, help me, fill me, lead me to become the kind of person that God designed me to be, that God wants me to be. And this is an everyday process. Remember, walking is not just one step, two step, and that's it. That's at best clumsy dancing. But walking is one step, two step, another step, another step. You continue to walk. It is a daily activity. So here's the take-home thought that I want you to remember this morning. Becoming the kind of person God wants you to become, God wants to help you become, is a daily process. And I know when your kids come home from school, you say, what'd you learn today? And your kids will say, nothing, right? But after 180 days of nothing, they graduate to the next grade. <laughs> they learn something. It's a daily process, sometimes hardly recognizable, but you begin to realize, you know what? God's changing me. I'm not as angry as I used to be. I'm not as selfish as I used to be. There's some maturity. And it's not just because you're growing older. It's because you've asked the Spirit to take the lead in helping you become the kind of person that God designed you to be. Nothing can stop that process except, except. And here's where I have to say that while there are some Christians who are so concerned about the filling of the Spirit and convincing evidence that they've been filled with the Spirit, they know little about what can actually hinder the Spirit of God from doing what only He can do in our life. And Paul uses two words to talk about what can hinder this letting the Spirit take the lead in our life. Let me, let me show them to you. The first obstacle is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. We read, do not quench the spirit. Quench means to restrain, to, uh, to, to put out, um, to put the fire out. It's also used of a goat whose milk is dried from lack of use. What was causing the quenching of the spirit in the Thessalonian church was they had watched the Corinthian church abuse and misuse the work of the spirit, and it created carnality, and it created chaos in the Corinthian church. And the Thessalonican church overreacted to that. And they attempted to tamp the Spirit down, to, to restrain the Spirit. And why did they do that? Fear. Fear at what they might experience. 
So here is obstacle number one. Obstacle number one is fear. And what can happen in the corporate life of a church in Thessalonica can also happen in the life of the individual believer. Take Timothy, for instance. Timothy was a young man who was letting the fear of others tamp down, restrain the work of the Spirit in his life. So, so Paul had to tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, fan the flame of the gift of God. Don't put it out. Don't let it die out. Fan the flame. Quenching is the fear of letting the Spirit of God take the lead in our lives. It, it comes from um, not knowing what, the, what, the, what that means, from, from losing control, losing control of, of my life, turning it over and surrendering it to the Spirit of God to work in me, to change me. Frankly, some of us are very comfortable in our fleshly behaviors. We've learned it since childhood. We've gotten used to it. It's gotten us through life. It works for us. Whether it works for anybody else or not, it works for us. But we're afraid to make those changes, to try something new that the Spirit of God is asking us to do, to change the person we say we want to become. That comes, it comes from fear. So, and Jesus, as you know, in Luke 11, spoke to that fear. And he said, if you're a dad and your kid asks you for something that's good and you're going to give him something bad, no, no, your heavenly Father won't do that either. God will not give you the Spirit of God to ruin your life. He will do what's good for you. And he wants to help you become the kind of person that God designed you to be. The Spirit will not do anything that will harm us. So fear is the first obstacle. The second obstacle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grieve means to wound, to hurt, to pain. In the context of Ephesians 4, what's causing the hurt and the pain and the wounding are such behaviors and attitudes as malice and wrath and anger and lack of forgiveness. Those are the things that we're getting in the way of grieving the Spirit of God. Obstacle number two is anger. Anger gets in the way when the Spirit of God wants to do His work in our life. If quenching the Spirit is the obstacle of fear, grieving the Spirit is the obstacle of anger. And, and if our fear is fed by our ignorance about what the Spirit of God wants to do in our life, then our anger is fed by pride. I'm the center of the world. Everybody else is here to make me happy. And by George, if they don't make me happy, it's not going to be fun for them either. There's a Christian counselor who said that anger is the number one reason why many Christian lives are ruined. He had counseled and married 439 couples in his career, and each time he married a couple, he got them to commit to coming and talking to him before they ever spent a night away apart from each other due to distress in their relationship. And he said that over the course of all those years, couples came to him, and he said the overwhelming reason why they were having difficulty was anger. And it takes many forms, many different temperaments. Some of us explode. Some of us try to hide it. Some of us hang on to it and plan revenge and grudge. And whatever form it takes, it grieves the Spirit of God. And grieve is a love word. You can grieve someone who loves you, and the Holy Spirit loves you. And we grieve him. 
we hamper his work. We get in the way of him taking the lead by our anger. And I can think of maybe a couple of reasons why anger might get in the way of what the Spirit of God can do. First of all, anger is a subtle sin. We can justify it, we can rationalize it, we can blame it on our personality. Men seem to have some strange idea that is an acceptable male masculine trait. Women exhibit it in its more subtle forms of griping and, and uh, gossiping. Whatever, whatever form it, it, it takes, it, it gets in the way. And we, by these rationalizations, by these justifications for our anger, we, we put a callus over any responsibility and any sensitivity to conviction of sin in other areas of our lives. And when you do that, we block the Holy Spirit's ability to take the lead in our life. Second reason why anger can grieve the Holy Spirit is because the anger causes us to have the wrong focus. If I'm going to become the kind of person God wants me to come, that means in part that Jesus needs to be Lord of my life. He needs to be my focus. But that is impossible to do when, when people or circumstances are controlling our responses to life. NFL football season began Thursday night. Amen? <laughs> Sorry, dear. Sorry, dear. Norm Evans is a retired former uh, all-pro player for the Seahawks. Now, would you please tell Sean that I showed a picture <laughs> of a Seahawks player up there? That's what Norm Evans said. He said, it's really dangerous for a pro football player to get angry. In fact, that's when linemen sustain most of their serious injuries. Anger is so harmful in football that if I can get an opposing lineman or end angry at me, he will concentrate on beating me and forget to attack the quarterback. When we get angry at the person across from us or the set of circumstances around us, we lose focus on where it should be. Bitter people focus on the faults of others. Resentful people focus on rehashing the past. And our anger can become an emotional habit that de-energizes us for the rest of life. One other football player, um, Mike Fuller, retired NFL safety from the San Diego Chargers a couple of decades ago, said, reflecting on his career, the wide receivers are continually trying to make us, the defensive backs, angry each time they come into our area because they know that if they can upset us emotionally, they can fool us on the next play. An angry person makes poor decisions. They can overreact. They can discipline severely. They can end up continually making choices and decisions that get in the way of the Spirit of God taking the lead in their life. Paraphrasing, one Christian wrote of their experience with anger, said, confessing and letting go of my anger freed me to do what I wanted most, to have the Holy Spirit work in my life. So there are the two steps. Keep on deciding the kind of person you want to be and then keep asking the Spirit of God to help you become that kind of person, to take the lead. And the good news is that God has given us His Holy Spirit's power to help us make that choice 
to help us live that kind of life. I, I imagine it this way. When we were all born, we had one power source installed. Paul calls it flesh, you can, sinful nature, whatever it is. It's a power source to make wrong choices, to, to do wrong, to sin. Some call it original sin. I just call it a, an energy socket of evil. It's, 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 it's in there. When we come to faith in Christ, he installs a second circuit in our lives, a second socket of power, so to speak. It's his power, the Holy Spirit's power. And I can decide every moment I'm faced with a choice, every battle I face, I can decide which socket I'm going to plug into this day or this decision or this situation, this person. Am I going to plug into my flesh power? Am I going to plug into the spirit power? But the good news is God's given us this second choice that I don't have to become the kind of person I don't want to be. I can become the kind of person God wants me to be. And remember, it's a daily process. You don't wake up the next morning. I remember when I was uh, in seventh grade, I, I was playing basketball, and I was short back then, shorter than I am now, and, and I wanted to be tall. And so one night I prayed, Dear God, please make me seven feet tall tomorrow morning. <laughs> and I, when I woke up in the morning, I dangled my feet, and they did not hang over the end of the bed. And then I realized I would have nothing to wear if, uh, if I were seven feet tall. But it doesn't happen overnight. It's a daily process where you, every day, every decision, you say, Lord, help me to remember the kind of person I want to become for your glory, the way you designed me to be. Spirit of God, take the lead in my life. These are daily prayers. It's a daily process. Every day. So every day, tell God, tell yourself, tell the devil the kind of person you want. You want to scare the devil? Tell him the kind of person you want to be for the glory of God. And then the very next breath, say, Spirit of God, you take the lead in helping me become. You, you can talk about filling of the Spirit. You can talk about control. Whatever it is, but this is what we're doing, asking the Spirit of God, the invisible Spirit of God, to change us daily. So at the beginning uh, this morning, I asked you, uh, do you know when you started walking? And most of you do walk. You know you walk. You've been walking for well, I wouldn't say how long some of you have been walking, but you've been walking. Now I want to ask you, are, are you walking by the Spirit? Are you taking one step, another step, and then repeating those steps? Asking the Spirit of God to take the lead in helping you become the kind of person to head in the direction that you want your life to become. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, thank you for the good news. Thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for saving us, for rescuing us, and then giving us the power, the option, to access your power in becoming the kind of people you want us to be. With your heads bowed and your, and your eyes closed, would you just take a moment, and, and, and I know this may be a bit uh, the teacher in me, would you take a moment just to pray in your own words? Tell God the kind of person you want to become. And then would you ask the Holy Spirit to take the lead?
every day, those are the steps we repeat. Sometimes multiple times a day. Father, thank you that one of the most basic activities of our lives can serve as an image to teach us about living our lives in your presence. I pray that um, the daily process of you changing us, even in the midst of when we feel ourselves headed in the wrong direction,